Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Holds Barred Podcast. Today I'm joined on the line by Tabish. How you doing, my friend? Yeah, very well. Thanks very much, Vlad. Uh, I'm really excited about this because I'm fascinated by the brain and know absolutely nothing about it. But can, before we start, can you let the audience know what it is you do and, and a bit about your background, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Tabish Safi. I'm a, a neurologist. So I work... Um, uh, in the in my capacity as a neurologist as a as a doctor so a neurologist is a specialist who sees patients with problems with the nervous system which could include the brain the spinal cord uh, the nerves or even muscle diseases i see those patients i make a diagnosis and then start treatments um so and, and as a, when you started out your your sort of journey as a as a doctor or, or when you got into medicine, what made what made you be drawn towards uh, the brain, I guess, or the nervous system? Yeah. Okay. So, it, well, it's a really fascinating area of uh, clinical medicine, and the conditions that people present with uh, are really interesting. Uh, there are many very common diseases, but there are also some very rare conditions. Uh, it's an area where you can really sort of um, make a difference and help people but also the uh invest the the sort of stage of investigation and uh, finding out what conditions people have is also sort of very academically stimulating uh, so i had a as a junior doctor i had a job um working as a uh, neurologist in uh, in a neurology hospital uh, and i really loved it really fell in love with it at that point i think i had inklings even before that during medical school uh, when I spent uh, an extra year doing uh, some specific neuroscience um, uh, work uh, within mm. my degree that, you know, it was something, that, an area that I was very interested in. It's very cliched, but, uh, you know, it's it's the most complex organ and it provides for some of the most interesting clinical medicine. I feel like I'm going to ask some really stupid questions on this podcast, but um, they're just things that sort of pop into my head. Um, <clears throat> so... What, what, how much do we know about the brain and its function? Do Have we kind of reached the limit of understanding what the organ is capable of and what it does? No, not at all. Um, I think we're really, really far away from even knowing the you know, most sort of simple things about how the brain works. 
there are lots of people um, around the world who, you know, have an interest in the brain. That might be people like me as a neurologist who are who has an interest particularly in diseases affecting the brain and how to diagnose those diseases and how to treat them. But you'll have lots of other people who are much more focused on the normal function of the brain. Uh, and that might be neuroscientists who have an interest in the cells within the brain, others within certain molecules within the brain, others looking at the brain more as a whole system, like a big computer and thinking about it from that point of view. You'll also have other doctors or clinicians looking at the brain, but other types of diseases. So psychiatrists, for example, are very interested in the brain, but look at a whole different set of conditions and diseases uh, than I might do as a neurologist. Um, uh, so, I mean, have we seen, and I'm not going into kind of X-Men talk here, right, but are, are we, more, is the brain capable of doing more than it does other than, you know, generating thoughts and enabling us to function and, um, you know, uh, helping us navigate the world or being essential in the way we navigate everyday life? But is, it, is there an idea in science or in medicine that, the brain there are parts of the brain that's untapped or or we don't use or is dormant for some reason yeah i i am not sure what the truth of that is i remember growing up hearing this sort of statistic that i'm sure you have that yeah. we use 10% of our brains i'm not sure what the truth of that is i think you know that the brain is a very complex organism and it does a remarkable amount and you know it's continuously uh, monitoring the environment around us and it's uh, making decisions on um, how to behave and interact with the environment around us um, and how to in interact with those um, around us as well. Um, I think different areas of the brain have their own um, sort of, uh, you know, sp specialist uh, functions, as it were. Um, and, you know, we I don't think we really understand a great deal about how each of those specialist functions work. We, we, we have some uh, ideas uh, within that, but um, I, I'm not sure really whether uh, it's working at its capacity or not. Uh, you know, I, 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 I don't think there's some sort of huge untapped uh, area within the brain that we're not using, but I think often we, um, we underestimate uh, what, what the brain is actually doing from minute to minute. You know, if we try and look at artificial intelli intelligence or robotics and try and mimic some of what the human brain is capable of, that it's incredibly difficult. And, um, you know, we're, we're very, very far away from mimicking the very sort of uh, uh, adaptable, flexible and generalised intelligence that the human brain can provide. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that and, and what your thoughts are, are on things like artificial intelligence. Um, yeah. this is, they... Well, I mean, these are things that are very outside my area of, of expertise. So I, I talk about it as a lay person. Of course, yeah, 100%. And then that's all I'm after, really. Um, but what, what, what do you like your understanding of the so so there is an idea that in the future, at some point, we will reach this moment of singularity where the the artificial intelligence will be able to self-procreate or mend itself or make itself better. And that from that point, it will exceed, it will become uh, beyond our control. But your understanding of the brain would mean that, is, is it conceivable, do you think, that, that, there would, that 
they we create a brain that's artificial and it functions like a human one or is it just we don't know enough or what, what do you think as a layman uh, I, I personally don't think that the way we're approaching artificial intelligence is necessarily going to mimic how the brain works, that sort of the brain uh, as an organic, um, uh, you know, um, structure works in a very unique way, the, 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 uh, the way uh, cells within the brain function, the way they communicate with each other, um, the contents of the cells, uh, the communication within the contents of the cells, etc., um, function uh, in a very different way to the sort of silicon-based nature of uh, computers. And whilst there are some parallels and similarities, um, I think the two, uh, you know, f fundamentally function very differently. Um, so I, I'm not sure it would exactly replicate what the human brain does. But but as I said, I'm not. I yeah. have, I have no expertise whatsoever uh, in this area. So I'm 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 not uh, not in a good position to comment. I don't think. Fair enough. I only bring it up because I'm kind of fascinated by that sort of AI yeah. stuff as well. It's, yeah. it's it's a scary thing. Anyway, let's move on to uh, back to the brain. Um, so when I move my arm, is that am I willing that to happen or is my brain what comes first like do you, do you understand what I'm, the question i'm asking is like yeah. i'm i'm making a conscious decision to move my hand i can see i'm doing it right now and my brain is doing that as well for me right it needs what is that process is that if, if i asked the question there yeah i think that's a great question i think in in very simple terms uh and the way we kind of understand this uh, to make the world easy for us is that our brain makes a decision to make a movement and um, that decision is then sent to an area of the brain right at the top of the brain called the motor cortex and uh, the motor cortex uh, basically then sends a message that runs down through the brain through the what are called motor nerves or uh, motor neurons uh, within the brain that travel all the way down to the spinal cord and then communicate with uh, other motor neurons that then send a message, an electrical message, down the arm, uh, which then sends a message to the muscle to contract. And in, in a very simplistic term, that's what happens and that's how you control uh, movements. There are other sort of modules within the brain if you want to call it that uh, for example the very back of the brain called the cerebellum and then deep within the brain called the basal ganglia that seem to um, affect and interact uh, with how that movement um, is made um, but from a more philosophical point of view I think that the, the question about uh, movement and free will becomes uh, much more complicated and I think that's an area we don't really understand uh, very well yeah so it's, it's right for me to be confused by that right i think so yeah <laughs> um and when uh what, what happens physically in the brain um when say you recall a memory like uh, i can recall any memory i like within that, that, that I, I i know i have accessible to me like what i did yesterday or what happened when I drove the kids to school this morning? Um, but sometimes 
I'll have a memory that I'd completely forgotten that had laid dormant and it just comes back for something for some reason. Can you explain how that might work or is there any ideas in the in in science or or um medicine about how or why these memories come back to us and and what happens physically in the brain when they do if you know. Yeah. Um so I there look there are different types of memory um and there are sort of memories that we use uh, when we're doing day-to-day things. You know, if I put my uh, keys down and I'm uh, typing on the computer uh, and I'm just sort of remembering uh, almost the last step I've done, that might be something that I would describe as working memory, whilst there may be the sort of memories that we use, uh, well, the, the sort of memories that recall what we did yesterday at lunchtime that might be a, a recent episodic memory. There are other memories that recall sort of knowledge that we couldn't pinpoint a time that we necessarily learnt that information, but it's just sort of embedded within our knowledge. For example, what's the capital city of France? Well, it's Paris. Uh, that's that's a sort of semantic memory. And uh, other memories might include things like um, autobiographical memories, things about ourselves um, fr- from the distant past. So there are lots of different memories and they all have slightly different networks and ways that they're encoded within the brain. It is very true. And I've definitely experienced that where um, you can't quite remember something and then something else seems to jog your memory. Um, There are uh, ways that that can uh, happen, I suppose. And um, it may be that uh, other clues that are encoded with those memories, for example, a, a, a you know a certain smell can uh, be encoded yeah. in um, in the brain uh, and be related to certain memories and sort of can go back and help jog your memory of of an event from a, a very long time ago. So you know, memory is pretty complex and it interacts with um, both uh, well with uh, uh, the the type of memory that's formed, but also um, uh, other um uh other factors uh within the brain for example mm. smells or sights or things you've heard etc and and when you say encoded because that's encoded sounds kind of superficial doesn't it this doesn't sound like something that happens in in a organic body um but <clears throat> whereabouts in the brain are memories kept and is there a physical act that's happening in the brain when a memory is made yeah, so um, there's an area of the brain called the hippocampus, um, which is a part of what are called the temporal lobes. Um, we have one on each side, uh, and they're very important for uh, memory formation um, and encoding of memories. But this, I, you know, we've gone beyond thinking about the brain as this bit does this and this bit does this, mm-hmm. uh, more to a um, a stage where we think about the brain uh, and its functions uh, in terms of networks, so areas that connect and communicate with other areas providing or subserving a function. Um, so the uh, this question about um, uh, encoding and how that happens, well, there, there are lots of things at lots of various levels that um, uh, happen when the brain tries to uh, encode or, or, or remember something. Um, 
the brain is essentially made up of billions, in fact, probably a hundred odd billion nerve cells or neurons. And each of these has many branches and those branches go off and they touch or communicate with other brain cells. And um, on average that, you know, each brain cell may communicate with thousands, perhaps 10,000 other brain cells. So you've got a massive amount of intercommunication between all these brain cells. And these brain cells uh, have electrical signals or pulses running through them, but they also send tiny chemical impulses to communicate with the neighboring cells that they're branching out to touch. Um, so these branches can evolve and change. Uh, these branches where they communicate with another nerve cell are called synapses, where they, where they meet the other nerve cell. And these mm. synapses can evolve and change the receptors for those chemicals can uh, evolve and change so there, there are lots of things at lots of different levels that can evolve and change to sort of encode or write down memories um okay so if um so the only thing that's purely uh sentient or, or at least um, aware of its own conscience is the human being how is there a difference in the way our brain is structured that enabled us to get to that stage um compared to say an ape or any other animal really that has a brain i'm not sure Flav. i'm not sure i'm the right to ask <laughs> i think we ventured right very very miles away from from what i'm sort of expert in fair enough to. um i mean uh, fundamentally as a neurologist i sort of see people who have you know medical problems that are neurological and i and i diagnose and then and treat those yep um, all right I put up, my apologies just get i get i get giddy when i'm thinking about these, <laughs> well, these, like, these are the more these are much more interesting questions perhaps i agree <laughs> <laughs> uh, no worries okay so so um i've, I've heard about I've, uh, i listened to a podcast the other day and they were talking about the um importance of sleep what what's happening why why is sleep so important to brain function yeah well sleep is 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 really critical and um we all know the feeling where um although we might be good at doing something whether it's what well, we were talking about memories remembering something or even a motor skill like playing football for example uh, we all know that if we haven't slept well the night before that we tend to perform really badly on those things that we might otherwise expect to do well with uh, and it's very clear that um, sleep deprivation uh, leads to problems with normal functioning uh, and that can accumulate uh, if we're not sleeping well. Um, so sleep's really important. There are lots of things that happen uh, during sleep. Um, most of that we don't really actually understand. There are sort of new theories about how uh, sleep might sort of rejuvenate or uh, refresh um, what we're doing. There's ideas about how dreams may or may not be important um, to uh, 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 normal function of the brain. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly it's certainly critical for us to, to function uh, normally. Is it true that there's a flush, the brain is flushed um, during the night, that there are, there are some sort of what, like a physical act that happens where the brain is flushed is that I, I, had, I had a conversation with a therapist who told me about this um that during the night at some point your 
the the brain is washed for want of a better expression is that does, yeah. that, does that make any sense well there's there's this sort of more recent idea about something called the glymphatic system um which uh relates to uh, cells that support i've already talked about brain cells or nerve cells within the brain mm -hmm. there are other what are called supporting cells uh, in the brain that might be important in helping sort of clear waste um, that builds up uh, within the brain uh, you know whether those are waste proteins or waste products of certain metabolic reactions within the brain uh, and it might be that that um, has a relationship with sleep uh, and also even there are interests uh, in that clearance system with respect to aging um, yeah fair enough and um uh in terms of uh your, your ideas about sleep or what you've read uh, sorry not sleep you, you're dreaming you mentioned um what 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 in your best estimate might be the point of us dreaming what what, what do you think that that's for or, or 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 have you read any interesting theories about what that might be about um so there's some ideas that um, if w when you dream, it helps you sort of uh, store important memories. So uh, there are experiments that have a look at uh, people who are trying to learn a new task, like a certain motor task. Um, and once somebody has had a refreshing sleep uh, and is retested on the task, they might actually perform uh, better than one would expect. So I've, I've had that. I've had that exact thing where I've had something that I can't solve or I'm struggling with and I'll sleep on it and I'll, or I'll come back to it after a certain period of time. Sleep might not have been involved and I'm able to complete it. Is the brain subconscious working on my behalf? Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And I think it probably does. Uh, we certainly know that uh, certain movements or you know um, uh, motor tasks that we undertake can actually improve um, over time and actually dream. There's lots of very recent research uh, looking at how dreams um, or sleep might actually help us to reinforce some of those learned uh, mo motor behavior. So yeah, it's, I think it's an incredible function of the brain and, and, and perhaps uh, um, you know, it's something that we don't really understand very well, but um, you know, something I've experienced as well and many of us have experienced. Uh, yeah, and I, I think like I, I guess in a sense, when I first noticed it, I must have noticed it in my teens, where the, where I was able to do this, where or, and, or people were able to come back to a problem that seemed somewhat impossible, and just with, and and you're not even physically thinking about that problem, and then you come back to it at a later date, or or so, so after a time, and and just, for some reason it makes much more sense than it did before. Um, yeah, so so it's it's like it's not magic, but it feels like magic. Yeah. You know what I mean? um, the point. Can you explain? I'm interested in things like uh, we've done lots of podcasts around psychedelics and uh, DMT and the you know what what happens in the brain when you're under the influence of certain substances, and it led us to a conversation about the pineal gland. Now, in my really rudimentary understanding of these things, this is the a gland in the centre of the brain that releases a chemical when you pass away. Is that correct? Uh, when you 
when you did you say when you pass away? Sorry, yeah, I've jumped a bit. Um, so when you pass away, the idea is that this releases a an effect in the brain, or releases a chemical that affects the brain that enables that process of dying to become easier because of the uh, stimulation that this chemical might give you. Have you ever heard of that, or if I just? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it may well be true. There's so so much uh, information about the brain. I, you know, I know a tiny uh, yeah. fraction uh, of that that's geared towards uh, diagnosing and treating people with a neurological disease. Um, does the pineal gland release a certain? Well, it's certainly a it's a sort of um, uh, a gland uh, within the brain that releases um, uh, certain uh, chemicals. So, for example. Um, things like uh, melatonin, which is a, a sleep-related uh, chemical, mm. that it might be important in, in releasing. Um, and can I ask you about headaches? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's happening in the brain when you have a headache, and why? And it can move around to certain different parts of the head, not in one go, but you know, you might get a headache at the back, or it might be at the front. But what, what's happening in in the brain to cause pain? Okay, well, that's a really good question. So I think that, um, you know, headaches uh, are something that neurologists see a lot of. And um, we split headaches up into two very broad groups. One is what we call secondary headaches. So that's where headache is happening in the head because of the kind of things that people worry about when they come to see me. So they, you know, they're worried that they've got cancer or a tumor in the brain, for example, a big lump in their brain or something like meningitis or you know these sort of structural structural or tangible things that you might um, uh, expect to cause headache these are things that cause an increase in the pressure within the skull because you know there's only certain space um, uh, within the skull and if you've got something expanding within that that causes a pressure problem something affecting the blood vessels which are pain sensitive within the brain these can all cause secondary headaches or something affecting other structures around the head, for example, your eye, um, you know, uh, problems uh, with your eye, like inflammation of the eye might cause um, headaches as well, or eye pain. So these are all examples of of secondary headaches. But actually, day to day, lots of people get headaches, and it's not because of these other secondary causes. It's what we call a primary cause of headache. So you'll have heard of some of the things that fit within this category, things like migraine, or tension type headaches mm. and there are other common causes of primary headache syndrome and in these conditions it's actually really um related to chemicals and electrical activity in the nerves and within deep parts of the brain that generally a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Great pain networks that cause pain in and around the head. Um, the location of the pain um, around the head can sometimes be helpful. Um, uh, for example, there are secondary causes of pain where a, a blood vessel can get torn, uh, for example, in the neck, and that might cause neck pain and pain on one side of the head that might indicate that's the problem. Or you might develop uh, pain uh, around the eye that comes and goes very frequently, and that might occur in a primary headache syndrome like cluster headache which you might or might not have heard of so the location of the headache can help but it's not always enough and often not enough to give you the diagnosis what you really need to know is the whole story you need to examine the patient and sometimes we need other tests like a scan of the brain to look for those what i mentioned secondary causes yeah and um, when you're scanning the brain uh this is an, M- an, M- an mri correct yeah, so there are different ways of scanning the brain. Um, you can use CT scans, which basically use um, lots of x-rays, um, and they look at structures um, in the head, uh, and they give you an image depending on the density of the uh, uh, of the structures within the head. MRI shows the brain in a lot more detail. It takes a bit longer to do an MRI scan. It's a bit noisier, uh, but it gives you much greater detail of, of the brain, but also some of the blood vessels and the nerves um, in and around the brain. Um, I'd imagine you deal a lot with dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. Um, is is it a case that it seems to be much more prevalent now? And it may be that I was just unaware as a kid, but it, it seems to be more prevalent now. And is it is that just a simple case of um, human beings are living longer and perhaps these things wouldn't have been picked up because we died earlier, you know, in previous times, or is there, is there a, something else that's happening? What, what it has, well, I guess the first question is, is it has, is there a, an, has there been an increase in the dementia diagnosis? Yeah. So I think that's a really good question, Flav. And I think the, 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 the rate of, um, uh, uh, or the, the prevalence of dementia and for example, Alzheimer's disease is definitely increasing. Uh, and as you say, part of that might be because of the fact that we're living longer, you know, other things that might have killed us off earlier, be it cancer or cardiovascular disease, um, uh, you know, and the, the treatment of those sort of conditions mean that we're living, you know, well into our 80s or even 90s and sometimes beyond that. Um and these what are called neurodegenerative diseases, where essentially brain cells are dying off progressively, that's what these conditions are, um, tend to happen uh, increasingly with age. So that's a big, big factor. Mm. Uh, there may be other factors that we don't really understand very well that might be at play. Uh, and also actually just the, the, the diagnosis. Sometimes, I mean, you know, decades ago, people would 
have uh, cognitive problems uh, may not necessarily have been diagnosed. We can now make these diagnoses with a bit more certainty um, clinically and using certain types of scans um, to to do that. So I think, you know, both our ability to pick it up and also the increasing prevalence with with age, I guess, are the are the biggest factors at play. But there may be there may be other factors that are more difficult for us to pinpoint. Um, my nan passed away uh, the year before last, and um, I can't remember what she was very, very old, but she certainly had dementia. And what we witnessed in um, is the is, is you know is the typical thing that most people know about is that she began to disappear, her personality began to disappear, uh, an ability to recall who we uh, we were or are uh, d- began to sort of falter, and then eventually she didn't remember us at all. Is that what what is that? Do you, do you understand what's happening in the brain to make that happen? Yeah. So I mean, these um, conditions uh, we umbrella with the term dementia or neurodegenerative disease, as I've mentioned. And what happens is we see that there is a progressive loss. We mentioned earlier that there were a hundred billion odd nerve cells in the brain or neurons mm. in the brain. And what happens is you get gradual death of some of these cells and that there are different types of dementia you've mentioned alzheimer's disease there are other types of dementia for example lewy body uh, disease or frontotemporal dementia these are a bit less common alzheimer's certainly the standout most common form Uh, with each of these we see death of nerve cells within different parts of the brain so um, you know that pattern is quite typical so for example for alzheimer's disease we might see death of brain cells particularly in the hippocampus or the memory forming areas of the brain which is why people with alzheimer's disease have very early uh, memory problems or problems navigating their way around familiar environments um, and that very early while in other types of dementia for example frontotemporal dementia we might see death of brain cells within the front of the brain where you sort of are decision making making executive um, uh, decisions and also uh, areas of language uh, within the brain the other difference is that we also see these funny proteins these sticky proteins being deposited in the nerve cells that seem to be dying off but we don't know whether these sticky proteins are responsible for the death of these cells or whether they are just um, consequent or you know, subsequent to the death of these cells. Um, so they're very interesting seeing these different proteins. And sometimes we can differentiate or segregate these types of dementia out depending on the type of sticky protein. When were, when were you aware of when did we discover the sticky proteins so they've been discovered um over time in in different forms of dementia uh, and we've come to understand more about them so for example in alzheimer's disease it's been um, a few decades since we've understood that um, a sticky protein called amyloid um, uh, and also tau uh, seem to be deposited within these brain cells um, and more Recently, we've discovered uh, the, the the presence um, and and the sort of identity of other proteins, and for example, these frontotemporal dementias, uh, which uh, are other types of protein. Um, and Lewy body disease I mentioned, 
there's a sticky protein that's actually very similar to what's found in Parkinson's disease, which is much, which, which is a, a slightly different condition. But it's mm. just the distribution of those sticky proteins is different. So they occur in different areas of the brain, meaning different brain cells are dying off. So fundamentally, um, that's that's essentially what dementia is: is that the, the dying of brain cells in yeah, various, and, various and, ways. Yeah, exactly, and associated with a progressive decline in in cognitive function or in multiple cognitive functions. Yeah. Um, my, um, these are sort of the experience I've had, so that's why I'm asking the questions. But my mum's husband passed away; he had vascular dementia. Mm. What what's that? So that's probably a very common cause of dementia. And we have blood cells within, uh, sorry, we have blood vessels within the brain, just like we do for the rest of our body. And we're quite familiar, perhaps, with the process of furring up of blood vessels. And we're aware that when we have furring up of blood vessels in the heart, that might cause a heart attack. If we have furring up of big blood vessels within the brain, that might cause a stroke. So a stroke is where, you know, a blood vessel might get... Yeah, that's what he passed away from eventually, yeah. yeah. Um, vascular dementia tends to be a dementia, so a progressive decline in, in, in multiple cognitive functions because of a combination of either strokes where big blood vessels are blocking up, causing a stroke, but in addition, usually, with the furring up of very small blood vessels that doesn't present itself suddenly that seems to be a gradual accumulation. So we might see that on a scan where we see tiny little blood vessels blocked up and maybe old strokes. And this is a condition that we describe as vascular dementia. Um, do you think that we'll get to a stage where we can, is it, is it impossible to reverse dementia? Once the damage is done, you can't you reignite the the dead brain cells they yeah. can't be I, well, I, reanimated i think that that's really interesting i often get asked this question you know have we got a cure yet um i think the first thing to think about with dementia is this is a progressive condition these are progressive conditions so you can imagine um the sort of graph or or, or, or the line of decline grad gradually heading downwards I suppose the first we don't at the moment really have any very good um disease modifying treatments so things that slow that progression down in the main forms of dementia like alzheimer's uh, well there is one there's one exception to that about uh, and that's a that's a new treatment that's just been approved in the in the us that made the news recently but that seems to have a very minimal and, and controversial effect on that progression but essentially if we can slow significantly slow that progression down that would be the first step the second step would actually be stopping the degenerative phase completely. So once people have had some death of nerve cells, they present to a neurologist like me, we give a treatment and then we completely stop that progression. So the graph kind of levels off completely. The third stage would be actually uh, rejuvenating uh, what has been lost within the brain. So, you know, almost replacing damaged or dead function i think that latter phase sort of recovery or turnaround of what's happened has to be a very very long way away uh, you know i i'm much more hopeful that the first and the second stages um of of slowing down the process and, and possibly um very optimistically stopping the process altogether 
uh, might be achievable over uh, the next few years, maybe 10 years plus. But, but the third stage would be, I'm sure, at minimum decades away in my mind. Mm. Um, I guess, though, if you're slowing it down and someone gets dementia and typically at an older age, that might be enough. Uh, you know, it, enable them yeah. to have a much better quality of life for the yeah. years that remain naturally. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I, you know, and I think, you know, for example, if you're in your 70s and you've got some uh, um, mild uh, cognitive symptoms and the culture is very much to be seen very early because we've got a treatment that can stop that process, then then, of course, although people may have had some uh, subtle loss in cognitive function, if they are seen early, diagnosed early and we've got a treatment that can then very much slow that process down or even stop it then actually that for practical purposes might be enough for for now uh, of course it's still not the ideal setting of turning things around but as i said you know the the, the likelihood that that any of us will see that in our uh, in our lifetimes i think is is low um, mm. okay fair enough um i just got a couple more questions and i'll let you go because i don't want to keep you for, for too long but this is fascinating to me um what happens you know when you drink a cold drink or you eat ice cream yeah and you get what is commonly called brain freeze yeah why what what is happening and why is it so painful okay so yeah we we, we certainly all had that uh, where you can get sort of a really severe intense um uh pain in the head uh and i think i had that the other day when i drank a very cold yeah. uh, uh drink so the it seems that there are actually specific headaches that we call cold induced or cold stimulus headache where this seems to happen and it seems that 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 very cold um stimulation um uh, triggers a, a change to um certain nerves um and the, the the and blood vessels within the brain so there are blood vessels that may constrict or uh, tighten up and there may be nerves uh, for example within the uh, sphenopalatine ganglion uh, sphenopalatine ganglion that might get triggered to stimulate or to you know send messages to the base of our brain um, that relates uh, uh, or cause that sort of headache or brain freeze and is it um, um, what what's the function of it why is it happening is it just to say is it is it about the, the is it a warning to say that what what you're doing could damage you not drinking cold or drinking water but 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 actually being in an environment that's too cold for you is that what that is yeah i i'm not sure what that the, there's presumably some sort of evolutionary function of that i guess mm. um and you might be right that maybe it's a it's a warning sign that this is something that um you know you need to be wary of and usually any sort of pain tends to have some um you know acute forms of pain often have an evolutionary benefit in trying to ward you away or keep you away from uh, those things that might be dangerous to you so i, I guess uh, but i don't know but that might be the origins i also always just find that fascinating that the the yeah. the, the sensation of pain is, is crucial to keeping us alive and we wouldn't stay alive for very long without it yeah um it's, a, it's an amazing thing yeah yeah um is uh so when you're drinking alcohol Mm-hmm. you you get you know your your um you can get blur blurry vision uh, speech is blur uh, can be um is it blurred 
Or slurred, yeah, slurred, slurred. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> what happened in my brain where I couldn't recall that that word? What was happening there? Do you know that? Because I often have, obviously, I, I, I make my living by talking. Yeah. And it's very frustrating at times where I can't grab the word I need, even though I know I need it. Yeah, well, it came to you in the end, didn't it? <laughs> you you gave it to me. That, that's what happened. But but do you know is do you know what's happening in the brain when that happens or not? Um, Would you be guessing? Yeah. You know, you're 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 you've got um, a range of uh, words that you want to try and select when you're when you're when you're speaking, and usually you'll have uh, certain phrases that you'll rely upon. And when you're saying something and you're trying to pick out a word that may be a lower frequency word in terms of your use, sometimes it can be a bit trickier, and that mm. there might be a very brief pause. Um, and sometimes that can be extended if, you know, uh, there may be factors that uh, uh, that, that extend that. Um, you know, we talked about sleep deprivation. Um, yeah. I don't know if your young daughter's been keeping you up at night, but. <laughs> uh, well, no, I it was uh, it was getting up early to take the, the boy to school. The girls, the girls at home, she's been okay. signed off because of COVID. But um, yeah, no, no, it's it's that that I guess it's that thing is that you're, you're not working at your optimum level because. You haven't given the brain everything it needs to to serve you. <laughs> yeah, um, a bit like your computer pausing a little bit as it's trying to process functions. Mm. I, I was listening to a lecture on speech, and um, I've just done it there. I've just i've i've put in an um in a pause as I try as my brain processes what I need to say, and um, now I notice I'm doing it. I can't stop. Yeah, <laughs> it's really, yeah. really uh, it's really uh, really annoying. Um, See, I've just done it again. Uh, so the brain uses 20% of the body's oxygen and blood. Is that correct? Does it need that much? Yeah, it's very metabolically active. So it does use a huge amount of the body's um, energy um, reserves. Uh, yeah, it's very metabolically active, a bit like the heart is or some of the other major organs are. And even when we're apparently not doing much um what's called the resting state of the brain it's still using up a huge amount uh, a large amount of blood flow um you know runs through the brain and so you know when, when that is compromised uh, uh, people present with sort of different problems that affect the brain we've talked about vascular dementia we've talked about strokes and these are some of the things that can be affected when the circulation to the brain is compromised Okay, um, and finally, I, it's not the sexiest uh, question to ask about the brain, but fatigue. When I feel physically tired, is that my brain telling my body that I feel tired, or or what? What what's what's happening? I guess in the brain when you start feeling fatigued. Sometimes you can feel it in your head, or you can feel it physically in your in your body. Do you, do you know much about what fatigue? How what causes fatigue? Yeah, I mean, there are, lot, there are different types of fatigue and we, we might sort of in, in lay terms think about physical fatigue where you've done a large amount of exercise and your, you know, your muscles are uh, reaching um, a capacity and your ability to uh, push beyond that is difficult because of, of uh, physical fatigue. But we also differentiate that from a sort of much more uh, mental or uh, cognitive fatigue some of that can be normal uh, you know if you've been working very hard concentrating on something um, you might feel a bit tired and fatigued some of that could be uh, tied in with 
uh, the need for sleep. But sometimes fatigue can become a pathological symptom. So, you know, it could be a marker of um, a, a problem, a condition or, or a disease, um, uh, or it could signal that there are certain factors within your lifestyle, for example, stress or overwork that are uh, at play. When, when you started out your your journey to, to become a neuro neurologist, um, is it do you, do, does someone who, who wants to operate on the brain start at the same place like how how yeah. different did, are, are those paths and what, I, I guess or guess why didn't you want to go into the sort of the treatment aspect rather than the diagnosis what what led you to where you were so what uh, what you're talking about is neurosurgery yeah. now within the realm of medicine so doctors you've obviously got family doctors or gps um but within a hospital or a secondary care setting you've got doctors that specialize in different things they can really broadly be uh, divided up into medical specialties and then surgical specialties so surgical specialties for example neurosurgery or cardiothoracic surgery or orthopedics are groups of doctors who are able to do an operation to fix a problem so for example if you've got a broken bone you might see an orthopedic surgeon who then does an operation to um, uh, to, to fix uh, that bone. Or if you're a neurosurgeon and somebody's uh, fallen and hit their head and they've got bleeding in and around the brain that's uh, causing damage to the brain or compromising the brain, then a neurosurgeon might go in and remove blood from the brain. However, it's fair to say there are lots of diseases and lots of conditions that are not amenable to an operation. So we've talked about dementia, Flav, and we've talked about how that might include the damage or death of brain cells gradually. You can't go in with hammer and tongs and fix something like that. It's a bit like your computer sort of having a uh, an issue. You know, you, you the, there are not many computing problems where you would actually, uh, you know, get a screwdriver and open your... Yeah. A laptop up or your hard drive up because that's not going to be the way that you're going to be able to help the problem you might use a sort of more software interface so mm. what i do is i diagnose neurological problems i do also treat them but the treatments would be for uh conditions um that are not amenable to surgical therapy so dementia is one example parkinson's is another where uh part of the problem is you uh have insufficient chemicals like dopamine within the brain so we can replace that there may be other conditions like multiple sclerosis where you develop inflammation within the brain we can't operate and remove inflammation but what we can do is we can calm the immune system down we can give infusions injections drugs uh, to try and help the immune system not become so overactive and stop it from attacking the brain causing inflammation so there are lots of treatments i as a neurologist would use um uh, that you know are aimed at treating diseases that you can't simply go in um uh, uh, physically to to change poke around in there's um <clears throat> um have you ever seen the film silence of the lambs yeah some some years ago yeah uh i think there was a a follow-up called hannibal if i remember rightly and there's a bit where he removes the top of a guy's skull and he has he's un, he's been sedated, but he's able to function and form um, and 
not be impacted by what's happening physically to his brain is that is that just fantasy is it could can 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 someone can the brain be exposed and people function yeah so uh, neurosurgeons do do operations uh what they call awake surgery so um, there are certain operations that might be undertaken so for example in in my world I, as a neurologist i have a specific um uh, specialist interest in a group of neurological disorders called movement disorders and there are certain conditions where a neurosurgeon might want to implant an electrode into the brain um, to, to stimulate that area of the brain and make improve that movement disorder and sometimes that sort of operation can be done awake and actually it can be quite helpful in some situations to do it awake because you, the patient can then demonstrate the movements and you can see a sort of instant uh, improvement in, in that movement. So there are benefits to it. There was the lady that uh, played the violin while whilst having an operation on her brain conducted. Yeah. Uh, and um, do you know about that, that story? Well, th- there are lots of stories like this because when... So, for example, sometimes things need to be done to the brain, for example, removal of a tumour um, from the brain. And sometimes then that tumour or that uh, mass might be very close to what we call eloquent functions of the brain. So eloquent functions might be things like movement of your hand or speech and um, damage to those areas would have a critical impact on your uh, you know, quality of life. And so sometimes there might be uh, situations where awake surgery might be helpful or beneficial, where it can be determined exactly where within the brain the surgeon is operating and trying to stay away from really sort of important, eloquent functions. It's fascinating. Thank you very much, Davish. That's um, a real pleasure, Flav. It was. Uh, it's, it's, I could go on all day on it. Honestly, I could, but it's unfair on you. So I'll. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for giving me the time. Thanks very much, Flav. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 